Hey, what's up, y'all? It's your man Montel Jordan, and this is how we do it. And right now, you're listening to Legal Face Off on WGN Radio. That's right. You're locked onto the high energy legal podcast with lawyers Rich Lenkov and Tina Martini. And they're going to be trading jabs on the breaking news and the hottest issues, sports, entertainment, politics. Nothing is off limits. Keep listening because this is how we do it. Welcome back to another installment of the Legal Faceoff podcast on WGN Radio. I'm Joe Brandon. As always, we're joined by Tina Martini of McDermott, Will and Emery. Tina, great to see you as always. Great to see you too, Joe. And Rich Lenkoff of Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich, how are you doing today? Doing well, Joe. Doing well. A couple of our guests for our first segment is to comment on U.S. Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer's retirement. We have Aileen McGrath, senior counsel at Aiken Gump and former law clerk of Justice Breyer, and also Dr. Sudale Malaku, sociologist and author of the book, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer. Thank you both so much for joining us today. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Let's just jump in, Aileen. I know you've been uh, talking a lot about your former boss's legacy. Uh, in the wake of his announcement a couple of weeks ago that he will be departing from the highest court in the land. What do you think his legacy will be? I think that Justice Breyer's impact on the court comes from his efforts to build consensus with other chambers and other judges. And we see that in some of his opinions more recently, the California versus Texas Affordable Care Act opinion, I think is probably the best example of a case where Justice Breyer achieved a consensus outcome um, through hard work and through his effort to kind of meet meet people where they are. And it'll be interesting to see who, if anyone among the liberals, steps into that role, because his, his approach is really informed by his unique perspective and political experience that no one else on the left really has. So um, it it will be a big difference, uh, particularly in the liberal wing of the court, to no longer have someone who has that unique political background and perspective. Dr. Malaku, what do you think will be the justice's legacy? I think that um, the work that he's done has obviously spoken for itself. But when we're strategically trying to understand um, some of the various ways in which Um, You know, he has sponsored and supported black women since we're, you know, I'm here to speak directly to the experiences of black women in law and particularly what that means in terms of um, having a black woman uh, sit uh, in this incredible position. He is he's leaving a legacy of sponsorship. Right. For me, that is exactly what he's talking about, what Biden is driving um, as we're really strategically thinking about elevating a black woman into a position that should have already been um, filled by a black woman by this point. Right. So I think that it speaks directly to what it means to be a sponsor. Right. What it means to be someone who is going to um, uh, really. put their book of business down, right, when it comes to bringing someone to the table. And in this case, because we're having this conversation around the importance of Black women occupying these, uh, you know, high prestigious uh, positions, it really speaks directly to the work that people are having to do and need to do to bring us into these spaces more um, holistically. So I think that's what I'm going to focus on when I think about what he's um, moving forward. Doctor, on that point, um, Joe Biden came out, as he did in the campaign, said that he is going to nominate a black lawyer 
or a black jurist uh, to fill Justice Breyer's seat. Again, he said that in his campaign, so it should not have been a surprise to anyone. But, you know, of course, he reiterated that uh, in the wake of Justice Breyer's retirement. And he has received some pushback on that. Uh, of course, we know as far back as Ronald Reagan, presidents have made an announcement in, in advance. Reagan did that with saying he would appoint the first female to the Supreme Court. What do you make of uh, his decision to do so, his decision to announce it in advance? And what do you make of some of the uh, responses that we've heard since he's done so? First, I think that his decision to announce um, his intentions is one that's just following through with the promises that he's made. Right. So it shouldn't be a surprise, but it also shouldn't be a surprise um, for black women to be considered for this position. And just understanding and thinking what he's been doing so far in terms of elevating black women lawyers into these coveted positions, um, it speaks volumes to what hasn't been done historically and what should have been done. Um, the response, of course, is offensive and troublesome for many of us because, you know, it's the idea that all of these women that are being, that are being brought um, uh, to the forefront with respect to this type of attention is one where they're having to justify or um, engage in these narratives around their qualifications, which is very problematic and incredibly racist. Uh, when we think about how systemic racism is deeply embedded within legal institution, but for the highest court, for us to be having uh, conversations where we're um, negotiating and trying to um, figure out ways to prove, almost prove, right, that these women are qualified, that their accomplishments at the very same time diminishing the work that they've done to get to this point and really under underestimating the fact that um, throughout their entire careers, they've had to deal with this particular barrier. Right. Having to um, engage in toxic conversations around their competence and accomplishments and to have a national discourse around um, uh, black, a black woman being elevated to this position or being considered. Right. We're, we're, we're at the very <laughs> beginning in terms of just considering a black woman for the position and immediately the response is, well, you know, um, there's there it's a reverse kind of narrative around what we're doing here, but also that they're they're not as qualified when, you know, how many years are we talking about where a black woman hasn't been elevated? 236, 37. I can't remember the exact uh, number, but, you know, at what point do we ever question the validity of white men, for example, sitting in these seats and, and being uh, chosen and considered for this position? So it's incredibly offensive. It, it really tries to diminish their accomplishments, um, but it also doesn't take into account the fact that they've had to battle these narratives their entire trajectory. So they were vetted very well. So to even be considered right, um, is a high honor, but it also speaks to the fact that they are more than qualified. Um, so, yeah, that's what I think. So, Aileen, what do you think of Justice Breyer's remarks at the White House about our country's ongoing experiment with democracy? Some commentators have suggested that it was a warning signal. What are your thoughts? I don't agree with that um, for a few reasons, including that the speech that the justice gave at the White House was so quintessentially Justice Breyer to me in the sense that he's been giving a version of that speech for as long as I've known him, which is almost 15 years now, and probably for many more years before that. He's always viewed 
a desire to, to kind of situate the court in the bigger picture of our democratic society as an important message that he needs to convey, especially to young people, but also just to the public more generally. And, and in fact, I had literally heard him give a version of that departure speech to visiting high school students and school children who had come to the court to hear about the court's work. When, when I was a law clerk, the justice loved to meet with visiting students and would you know, whip out his pocket constitution and all and talk about the, the ongoing experiment and how that, that plays into you know, public perceptions of the court and how the court works and why it works. So when I heard his speech, I didn't come away from that speech feeling like he was issuing a warning signal at all. I felt like, in fact, it just really captured his kind of perpetual optimism about the court and our democracy and the future of our country and his desire to instill that optimism into the next generation, which is something that he, I, I just think that's one of his core, most fundamental qualities not something that I think reflects a commentary on um, current events or any events of the last year and change in particular, but, but just his overall view about, um, about the court and why it matters. Uh, doctor, your, your new book, uh, which looks really excellent, is entitled, You Don't Look Like a Lawyer, Black Women and Systemic Gendered Racism. In that book, you argue that um, Black women, and in particular in the law, have to overcome obstacles that others don't. And I'm wondering what your thoughts are in how that would apply to the next justice. And I think you said that that makes that individual even more qualified almost than anyone else because of the inherent obstacles they had to overcome. And how does overcoming those obstacles make that person uniquely qualified to serve as a justice, given the issues that are going to be facing the court in the next term, Issues like abortion and separation of church and state and voting rights in particular. Talk to us about how you think the next Supreme Court justice will be uniquely qualified to deal with those kind of issues. I absolutely agree with um, with you, Rich. I think that the next justice is more than qualified in various ways, not just on paper, but thinking about a lot of the barriers that black women have um, have been forced to really navigate in in various types of white spaces, but these particular women who were who who have been um, put in this amazing position have had to navigate around discourses with relation to their competence, their appearance. Um, they're dealing with daily racial and gendered aggressions that you know cumulatively have a significant impact in the way that they operate, not just in the workplace but outside, and so they have very thick skin. They have had to have that type of, you know, thick skin in order to get to this point, period. And so, you know, when we're when we're thinking about the ways that they have had to really try to um, sustain and create an image right, of themselves, a perception of themselves in order to fight against narratives that suggest that they are other or they are incompetent or they don't look professional as you, you know, the title of my book is you don't look like a lawyer. And that can apply to many different groups, but specifically black women's experiences that they are oftentimes not perceived as the professional in the space and their abilities are, are put into question. So these women who are, who are going, who are already present battling this from the very beginning, we already understand and know that there are going to be 
excellent candidates when it comes to dealing with those real tough issues that we're dealing with in the United States, whether it's abortion, you know, um, whether it's voting rights, right? All these various things they know as individuals who have had to deal with inequality, who have had to deal with systemic racism and sexism, right? And all of these various other types of inequalities that impact their daily trajectory. Um, They have an arsenal. They have a toolbox that they reach towards when they're trying to navigate and, and engage in these spaces and with different types of people, right? But they've always had to negotiate. That's the whole purpose, right? That's the whole point. They're dealing with incredible amounts of invisible labor that are neither recognized, right, or compensated in in, in various ways. And so when we think about what they've gone through, they've really been paying a a high cost this entire time. And I speak about this in the book in in terms of an inclusion tax, right? So the ways in which they're uh, having to spend an incredible amount of energies labor, invisible labor in the form of emotional, cognitive, relational, and financial, just to be not only in these spaces, but to really try to adhere to and or resist dominant um, expectations of them. So I think they're qualified, they're well-prepared, and they're up to the task, right? Um, And I think the narrative should really move away from questioning their abilities and competence to focusing on, okay, here are the candidates that we have who are already vetted out to this degree. Now, who's going to be the best person in this scenario, in this situation? So no one has given, no one has done them a favor, never, not even up until this point, but the assumptions that someone has is just purely racist. So I want us to focus on that. Aileen, last question on legal face-off. Can you share a story with our listeners about Justice Breyer that gives them some insight that they otherwise wouldn't know about him? You know, one of the stories that I most love to tell um, that really, I think, sheds light on the justice as a person and not necessarily as a jurist was um, that he would, he he really took an immense pride in his clerks, not just as law clerks, but as people. And he understood how important the clerkship was, not just to them, but to their families. And so he would host each of our families during during the clerkship, would invite our parents to, you know, visit chambers and have tea with him, which was obviously, you know, a really moving experience for for families, not just because of the opportunity to get to meet the justice and to get to be, you know, see this amazing institution from the inside, but because he would sit down with them and talk about about you, about his law clerk and about the things that made you impressive and the things that set you apart. Um, And to me, that really encapsulates Justice Breyer in the sense that he understood the human element in every interaction. And he understood that small gestures could make a big difference. Um, And you see that in him as a person and also as a jurist, frankly. And, And one of the, you know, his announcement of his retirement has been really emotional, I think, for a lot of his clerks to think of him no longer being on the court. But it's also been fantastic, I think, for us to have the opportunity. You know, people don't know that side of him, the human side of him that we all know so well. And so it's been really great to have a chance to share those stories about him because seeing the humanity in everyone and situating people within their families and their society. These are things that I think all of our public servants could stand to emulate. And that's one of the, um, one of the things I learned most from him and have taken with me over the years. Again, that's former law clerk of Justice Breyer, Aileen McGrath, also senior counsel at Aiken Gump. Check that out at akengump.com, along with Dr. Sudale Malaku, 
sociologist and author of You Don't Look Like a Lawyer. Check out her book as well. Up next, we'll both discuss Brian Flores in the NFL here on Legal Face Off. Stay tuned. You are listening to Christina Martini on Legal Faceoff. Tina is a partner at McDermott, Will & Emery and focuses her practice on domestic and international trademark and copyright law, as well as domain name, internet, social media, advertising, and unfair competition law. Tina has received numerous professional accolades, including an AV preeminent rating by Martindale Hubble and being selected for many years as one of America's leading intellectual property attorneys by various legal publications, including Chambers and Partners and World Trademark Review. Tina is also the recipient of the Anti-Defamation League's Women of Achievement Award and has been recognized by Crane's Chicago Business as one of Chicago's most influential minority lawyers. In addition to her full-time practice, Tina is an author, columnist, legal analyst, and podcast host, and she frequently shares her thought leadership with respect to current issues and trends impacting both the legal and business landscapes through various media outlets. McDermott, Will & Emery is an integrated international law firm. McDermott has an uncompromising commitment to legal excellence, extraordinary client service, and a high-performance culture. It is committed to helping clients achieve stellar legal and business results today and well into the future. To contact Tina and to learn more about McDermott, Will & Emery, visit mwe.com. Continuing on to the Legal Faceoff podcast, we move to the topic of Brian Flores' accusations of the NFL having systemic racism and hiring practices of NFL head coaches as they continue to circulate throughout the league. We have Elisa Jessup of The Athletic, an associate professor of sport law and sport marketing at Pepperdine University. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Professor, this story obviously has got a lot of attention, but on this show, we like to concentrate on some legal issues. So I haven't heard, uh, you know, legally it explained too well. Maybe you could break down to us from a purely legal perspective, the hurdle or hurdles that Brian Flores faces when alleging that the NFL, the Dolphins, the Giants and the Broncos violated Section 1981 of the Civil Rights Act. What, what, What does that mean and what does he have to prove? The legal hurdle that he faces is he has to prove intentional discrimination. And even though intentional discrimination definitely still exists and frankly persists today in 2022, it's a really difficult legal standard to prove because you have to have some piece of evidence that demonstrates that the reason why a contract wasn't made with Mr. Flores or other black coaches to become head coaches was a result of their race and not because of other factors. And so proving that intentionality is going to be a difficult hurdle for him in this instance. So, Professor, last Tuesday, the NFL dismissed Flores' claims of racial discrimination in football's hiring processes as being without merit. But on Saturday, Commissioner Roger Goodell sent a memo to the league's 32 owners calling the league's lack of head coaching diversity unacceptable. Why the about face? Yeah, I I think if I was uh, Commissioner Goodell sitting in front of you today and discussing those two pieces of communication, I would argue that they're different pieces of communication. You can categorically deny the allegations within a pleading, but at the same time, recognize that you are a league that has 70% black players. And at the time that the pleading was filed, one black head coach and see that not only the optics of that, but also the reality of that spell problems for your league from a PR standpoint. So PR doesn't always mean that a law was violated. And I think 
in that instance, you have different aspects of the NFL taking different approaches, arguably with the same fact pattern involved. So it'll be interesting to see how the court comes out in this case. Professor, let's talk about the Rooney Rule, because the Rooney Rule is now about 20 years old. It was first instituted to address the disparity between the amount of black NFL players and those who are coaching in the front office. And we went from uh, one black head coach to, I think, a high of, of, of 11, or I'm sorry, a high of eight in 2011. Now we're back down to one. Uh, Brian Flores' former employer, the Dolphins, are expected to hire a biracial coach. So maybe that'll be, you know, two. But does the Rooney rule still make sense? Is it working? Of course, we've heard, you know, many stories of, and in this case, that these interviews are simply a pretense to meet the requirements of the Rooney rule. So what is the future of the Rooney rule? And is there something else that the NFL should do to ensure that this kind of disparity doesn't continue down the road? This is Super Bowl week, and there are a lot of meetings and events taking place. And a number of civil rights leaders today called on Commissioner Goodell to eradicate the Rooney rule. And in eradicating the Rooney rule, it's not that these individuals don't want um, some sort of opportunity to exist for diverse candidates to be hired. Their argument is, to your point, this rule has existed for 20 years and little movement, if any, has really occurred during two decades as it relates to diverse coaching candidates being hired. Now, the Flores case involves allegations made by Black head coaches, um, which are very necessary. But across the league, other races and genders have largely been head, held out of head coaching and even coordinator and assistant coaching positions. So the Rooney rule is a starting place. And 20 years ago, it was a great place for the league to begin in diversifying its employment, but it's not an end game. It's not the stopping point. And there's a lot more that needs to, and frankly could be done. And Brian Flores in his lawsuit against the league brings up some good ideas related to transparency and oversight that could foster diverse hiring beyond the recommendations made by Mr. Flores in his complaint. One thing that the league, if it does seriously want to argue it's considering diverse hiring needs to do is it needs to explore bias in its organization. And it needs to understand more deeply if it's not intentional racism that is causing this divergence of players versus front office executives, what is it? And what it might be is bias. Um, as humans, we have a tendency to surround ourselves with people who are like us. That's our natural inclination. It goes back to our survival brain it's not the best for business though. And so what the NFL could do a much better job is educating and opening its leaders' eyes to the fact that there is data and research that shows when there is diversity amongst leadership groups, it actually translates not only within the organization, but outside of it to generate better business outcomes. So professor, you know, it's interesting that this is going on. It's Black History Month. This lawsuit was filed the first day of Black History Month. We also have a change that's happening in Supreme Court where Justice Breyer recently announced that he's retiring and President Biden came right out and said um, to address the fact that Justice Breyer is retiring, that he's going to nominate a black woman to the Supreme Court with some pushback, but not a lot. 
why didn't one of the eight owners who's looking to hire a head coach come out and say he's hiring a black head coach regardless of the Flores lawsuit? I'm not an owner, so I, I don't know why they didn't do that. There are many qualified black head coaches for NFL teams. There are a lot of black men who are more than qualified to be head coaches of NFL teams. So frankly, I don't know why one hasn't been hired in this cycle. Um, Lovey Smith is projected to become the head coach of the Houston Texans, which would add a second black head coach to the league. I don't know. I, I, I frankly do not know why more are not being hired into these positions because there are plenty of qualified candidates. Professor, last question here on Legal Faceup. We'll let you go. I know that uh, you've written and are, in fact, writing um, a law review article on human trafficking in sports. Really interesting topic that you don't see very often because I think people um, consider, you know, athletes to be these very strong, very able uh, individuals who wouldn't be subject to human trafficking. Um, the Super Bowl, as I think you mentioned, is one of the events where you see human trafficking spike. Can you talk to us very briefly um, about some of the research and the work you're doing in this really important topic? Sure. So I'm a member of the Junior League of Los Angeles. And yesterday um, we gathered together with hundreds of people to label bars of soap that will be distributed to hotels and motels across the city. Um, with the National Human Trafficking Hotline in case an individual who's being trafficked sees them, they at least have one piece of information about how they can escape the situation they're in. But trafficking spans well beyond prostitution, not only in sports in this world. There is a pipeline of international players who are brought to the United States illegally to compete in the high school, intercollegiate, and even professional levels of competition. It happens across all sports, not just football. It's growing in prevalence in basketball, and that's what my research is focusing on now. How can we best protect college athletes in an age of NIL when there's more money surrounding them than ever before? And as we all know, um, with money brings bad actors. So my life is dedicated to protecting athletes and their well-being, and this is the next step in that research. So thank you for asking about that. Again, that's Elisa Jessup of The Athletic and Pepperdine University. Follow her on Twitter at Ruling Sports. Alicia, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you all. We all know the legal world is complex and high pressure. There's no room for error. That's why judges and attorneys across Chicagoland have trusted the expert court reporters at McCorkle Litigation Services since 1948. McCorkle Litigation Services has accurately recorded every word from thousands of legal proceedings. McCorkle Litigation Services provides the legal community with peace of mind, transcribing testimony and depositions that can be used reliably by jurors, judges, and attorneys. For all your legal support needs, contact McCorkle Litigation Services online at McCorkleLitigation.com. Moving along in the Legal Faceoff podcast after Jason Van Dyke, the Chicago police officer that shot Laquan McDonald 16 times, killing the teenager, is nearing an early release date. Cherise Pryor says that Chicago has made slow progress mandating police reforms to the consent degree. We have Cherise Pryor joined with us, the senior staff counsel and director of criminal legal system and police accountability. Cherise, thanks so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for having me. So Cherise, as Joe mentioned, Jason Van Dyke is um, getting early release. He was actually released 
um, after serving only three years of his nearly seven year sentence after shooting Laquan McDonald and murdering him by shooting him 16 times back in 2014. What are your thoughts on Van Dyke's early release? Um, well, I think it is uh, disappointing uh, when you consider that um, the sentence served here is disproportionately short compared to the severity of the offense committed. Therese, what would you have liked to have seen uh, different than what has been done? Obviously, I'm sure you would have liked to have the former officer served his entire sentence. Um, what I would have liked to have seen is something that we can achieve, um, and that is this not occurring in the first place, right? Um, what I would like to see is a system in place that ensures front and back end accountability so that we don't have a situation like a Jason Van Dyke. Um, I want our uh, court system to work effectively. Um, that happened in this case, right? There was charges, there was a court case, there was a um, conviction and a sentence. Uh, I would also like our court um, to function in a way that is equitable for all people, such that we don't have cases where uh, the sentence doesn't seem to fit the crime. Um, why do you... What do you attribute his early release to? I mean, this case famously or his, you know, post-conviction uh, case has involved, famously involved very little information, right? Coming out of uh, the penal system. Um, he was moved a couple times and it's not quite clear even as of today why he's being released early. What to what do you attribute his early release? And do you think there's other factors at play besides maybe what we're hearing from official sources? I don't know um, the uh, official reason. Uh, I think part of it has to do with the uh, crime that he was charged with. So under Illinois law, um, the uh, conviction that he receives allows him to receive a time served for good behavior. Uh, which creates a situation where he can be released um, much earlier, 50% uh, um, of the time that he was actually sentenced to serve. So, Cherise, some commentators on his early release have actually said that the verdict was a lot more important than the length of his sentence, including Mayor Lightfoot and Reverend Martin Hunter, who is Laquan McDonald's great uncle. If you would have the opportunity to speak with them right now, I think we know how you feel about that. What would you say to them? I think that a sentence, a verdict is an important step. Um, and, you know, I don't want to speak for how the family should feel. Um, I believe, again, um, that I would, I would say to them that we need to have systems in place so that we don't have this situation again. Um, I, I won't quibble with what the appropriate sentence for Jason Van Dyke should be. I think we should be thinking about as a city, uh, what we can do, how our police uh, department should function so that we can avoid another Jason Van Dyke and we don't have to worry about uh, what sentence is the appropriate sentence. 
Therese, I saw an interview last week. I'm sure you saw it too. It got a lot of notoriety. Um, it was police superintendent, uh, the Chicago police superintendent discussing the consent decree that you mentioned earlier. And this is David Brown, of course. And I was kind of struck by him uh, talking about the progress that the city has made and the department has made since he became leader. And his quotes were that when he was hired in 2020, the department's compliance with the consent decree uh, was only around 23%. And that's up from 11%. And then he has said he's expecting that the next report from the independent monitor for the period ending December 31st, which showed that the department was near, near 70% compliance. That's progress, right? Of course. But to me, after you know this amount of years since the consent decree has been in place, only to be near 70% compliance. And remember, compliance is simply the fair administration of justice, right? Police treating everyone equally. That's not something that presumably should take many years. That should, that should be the, the status quo. So it struck me that the superintendent is still sort of boasting about getting near 70%. When do you think it'll get to 100%? And I know that you're feeling that there is a direct correlation between the failure to adhere to the consent decree and situations like Laquan McDonald? Yeah, this is a tough question. When CPD will get to full compliance, I don't know, but it is concerning to me. I haven't yet seen uh, the upcoming report and so don't know what amount of progress that CPD has made. It's important to know that in order to reach compliance, um, you have CPD, there's three different levels that CPD has to reach. The first is putting policies in place. The second is training. And the third is making sure that officers are putting into practice uh, the policies that they receive training on. In the last report, CPD, for example, had only reached compliance with 8% of the provisions in the accountability, um, excuse me, only released uh, reach some level of compliance with only 8% of the accountability sections that were under review, um, which is deeply concerning for me, considering that CPD is responsible for investigating over 70% of uh, complaints against its officers. And so there is a long way for CPD to go. Um, in certain jurisdictions, it has taken um, over a decade for compliance. I am happy to be proven wrong on this regard, but I see C CPD uh, in this thing for the next several years. So Sharice, we've talked about reform and trying to get CPD to the point where they're compliant. There's also been discussion about other measures potentially calling on the Justice Department and civil rights charges being filed. What other steps beyond the reform that we've talked about do you think would help us ensure that there isn't another Laquan McDonald? I think some important, um, one important thing that happened uh, after um, Jason Van Dyke's conviction uh, is the creation of the uh, Citywide Commission on Public Safety and Accountability that uh, was created as a result of the um, Empowering Communities for Public Safety Ordinance. To me, this is important because it puts some accountability on the front end, making sure that 
community has an important role to play in the development of uh, the, the police department's policies. I think one critical area that is a part of the consent decree that I think is critically important is making sure that the department puts in place an early intervention system that allows supervisors to identify at-risk officers who are um, committing bad behaviors and allows their supervisors to put in place some interventions, whether that's training, more close supervision, or if misconduct occurs, discipline, so that you don't get to the situation where there's escalating levels of misconduct uh, that could eventually rise to an excessive use of force and in the worst case scenario, deadly force. Again, that's the Director of Criminal Legal System and Police Accountability, Sharice Pryor. She encourages you to check out bpichicago.org for more. Sharice, thanks so much for jumping on Legal Face Off. Thank you for having me. Rich Lenkoff is an attorney with Bryce Downey and Lenkoff. Rich is consistently recognized by clients like United Airlines, McDonald's, Macy's, Dollar Tree, and the Chicago Bears for his outstanding litigation results. In 2015, Target named him their top outside litigation attorney in the country. Rich has received a number of industry accolades, including Illinois Super Lawyer from 2015 through 2019 and Leading Lawyer from 2012 through 2020 designations given to less than 5% of Illinois attorneys. Rich is also an active member of his community, including serving on organizations like the Advisory Board of Legal Prep Charter Academy and the Board of Visitors for the Northern Illinois University College of Law. In addition to his full-time practice, Rich is a prolific producer with credits including Elvis Presley's Heartbreak Hotel, 85, the greatest team in football history, starring Barack Obama, Bill Murray, and the coach, Mike Ditka. And Renegades, a live show in Las Vegas starring Terrell Owens, Jose Canseco, and Jim McMahon. In addition to co-hosting Legal Faceoff since 2013, Rich is the legal analyst for The John Williams Show on WGN Radio. Bryce Downey and Lenkoff is a full-service litigation firm practicing general liability, workers' compensation, professional malpractice, business transactions, and intellectual property, among other practice areas. For more information about Rich and Bryce Downey and Lenkoff, please visit BDLfirm.com. That's BDLfirm.com. It's time to move on to the legal grab bag here on the Legal Faceoff podcast. Our two guests today, we'll start with attorney Tony Thedford, partner of Thedford Garber Law. Check it out at thedfordgarberlaw.com. Tony, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. How's everyone? Doing well, doing well. Along with Rachel Fizet, friend of the podcast and co-founder and managing partner of Zweibeck Fizet and Coleman, zfclaw.com is where you can find out more info there. Rachel, thanks as well for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Rich, let's start off with attorney Michael Avenatti, convicted of wire fraud and aggravated identity theft for stealing from Stormy Daniels. Yeah, hot off the presses on Friday in uh, Manhattan. He was convicted, as you mentioned, of a couple of uh, crimes. Uh, again, I'll remind all our listeners that we hold the distinction of what the last Avenatti interview on Legal Faceoff before <laughs> he got into some serious legal problems. This is not his first conviction, but he is. This is a serious crime. I mean, he was convicted of uh, two serious crimes. This is resulting from his. Uh, now proven theft of an advance 
for his client, Stormy Daniels. Uh, the jury was deadlocked on another of the crimes, but pretty serious crime. And that's not the only one. He's got another one coming up. Um, so, you know, a lot of people are pointing to this as uh, kind of a, a, a proper comeuppance for a guy who really was all over the media in the uh, last couple of years. Of course, he was a frequent critic of Donald Trump. So Trump is happy today. But uh, Tina, your friend, Evan Addy, is uh, going <laughs> yeah, to jail. Of I, know we, I, I pulled some strings to get him on the show like two days before, you know, he was arrested. Um, so, yeah, you know, I actually he's got so many lawsuits against him at this point. I can't even keep track. I think there's like at least two or three more. Um, and when you read through what he purportedly did, I think Stormy Daniels was on the stand for hours. I mean, some of the things, I mean, he just, it was, it was crazy. Like when she would ask him where the advance was, he was constantly making up stories about, you know, that it was her issue. The reason why the, why, why the, um, why the advance wasn't coming her way. Um, I mean, it was just cold and calculating. I mean, he seemed, you know, I remember you and I, when we were getting ready to interview him, thinking it was going to be a, a total meltdown, but actually he was quite lucid and rather chatty and conversational when we had him on the, on the show, Rich, but I don't think we're going to be seeing him in person anytime soon. That's for sure. <laughs> Tony, uh, Avenetti represented himself. Of course, he is an experienced trial lawyer. Uh, he has vowed to overturn this injustice as he called it on appeal i don't know if he'll, he'll if he'll retain counsel for that he would be wise to do so you would think but you know the old adage is a lawyer who represents themselves has a fool for a client do you think he was served well in particular by his cross-examination as tina mentioned of stormy daniels which apparently didn't go very well well, I think there was no plan. Uh, it, the key to this whole thing with him representing himself on this last case was that he fired his lawyers after day two of trial. So this wasn't one of these things that he planned. So his cross-examination of Stormy Daniels is just like sort of any of us just standing up cross-examining someone without prepping to do so. So first of all, I think just as a strategy or as a plan for a lawyer, it's a bad idea for reasons like that. Um, but in addition to that, though, I mean, I, this may be your friend, Tina, and I'm sorry. I, I just met you. I don't want to insult you. But this guy's <laughs> lost. I mean, his, his whole thing is a pyramid scheme. He's always trying to steal from one place to pay for something else that he's gotten in on his head, over his head in, you know, and over his head in, sorry. And so it's just kind of sad because the other cases that are pending and those that he's been convicted of have sort of that similar uh, strain of just greed or desperation. And um, we see a drowning man. That's why he represented himself. Rachel, you represent, you know, a lot of white collar criminal defendants. And I know that your experience in dealing with, you know, prosecutors who once they get their hands on a high profile defendant, don't let go. We've had countless amounts of U.S. attorneys, former U.S. attorneys on this show. Talk to us about how difficult it might be, even though you do a great job, to defend against a prosecutor, defend a client when the prosecution really wants to make an example out of a high profile defendant like Avenatti. Well, Avenatti is a treasure trove for them because he just keeps giving and giving right. and giving. So that's where I think our the difficulty is for his case is no one is there to control him. And when he has another lawyer, 
he fires them. So he is a gift that keeps giving to the prosecution and there is no client control. So when we've had high profile clients or when you're representing somebody who appears to be the gift, you you are the layer between the gift and the prosecution. And it is your job as their lawyer to put them in the best light and make sure they're not doing a whole lot to hurt themselves on the other end. So here you have uh, what appears to be a narcissist lawyer with some criminal activity. Just really quickly, Rachel, I mean, if this was your client, you were defending this case, uh, would you have advised Avenatti to testify? Obviously, as you mentioned, he's a narcissist. It would have been almost impossible to muzzle him. But in the wake of a lot of other high-profile defendants recently who have testified before the jury, some positively, some negatively, would you have advised him to testify? It is a really difficult call to advise a criminal defendant to testify. It is rare that the advice is to testify um, unless there is really some surefire thing they can say that can help themselves. And I don't think in this case he had that. Get your applications ready. Goodwin Proctor is reportedly offering paid vacations not vacation days, paid vacations for their associates, attorneys, advisors, and clerks, Tina. Yeah, so Joe, and what appears to be a first in big law, um, the law firm Goodwin Proctor announced last week that it's offering a new program called Recharge on Goodwin to some of its workforce. And as the name gives away, and as Joe mentioned, um, Goodwin's offering vacations for its associates, professional track attorneys, science advisors and science law clerks. Um, there are a couple of catches. I mean, first of all, these vacations are going to people that are timekeepers at the firm and I'm sure making a lot of money for the firm. The second catch is they had to bill at least 1,950 hours in 2021. Um, Goodwin's offering to pay up to $10,000 for these vacations and they said, the intention is to provide thoughtfully curated week-long trips so that all these folks that have been working so hard can get some rest and relaxation. The firm is offering people um, the option of either choosing their own adventure, so to speak, or to put these trips together for those who are interested in partaking. Um, I personally come across Goodwin a lot. They're a huge competitor of my firm, particularly in the life sciences space, which is something I do a lot of. Badmouth them. Time to badmouth them. And there's a huge war on talent. So I think that this is brilliant. And I don't think they're really losing all that much money considering everybody works on vacation now anyway. So I'm sure they're going to get some billable hours on these vacations that they're paying for for folks. Yeah, on the one hand, as for you know, when I first saw the story, it struck me as you know the continued um, placation of uh, young people that don't understand the value of hard work that we all have built our careers on. But you know, obviously, uh, in this day and age, everyone's mental health is uh, challenged, right, for a variety of reasons. Not the least of which is that been home for a couple of years. And this is especially important with young, I think, people, young attorneys. We've all seen, I'm sure, turnover in our firms. We certainly have. And one of the constant themes we see is that for the last two years, you haven't had a lot of contact that's resulted in, you know, uh, the inability to be mentored, to mentor other people, to uh, collaborate and so forth. So I think we'll continue to see trends like this, law firms looking for creative ways to 
reward, incentivize their attorneys. And yeah, to your point, uh, it's as mar- much a marketing piece as anything, I think, right? When you look at the numbers, it could easily just be a bonus. And most many people would argue, I'd rather have the money. Let me do what I want with the money. But in terms of uh, the fact that it's a marketing piece and hell, we're talking about it on America's number one legal podcast. So it obviously achieved uh, some of its uh, some of its goal. But uh, Rachel, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Is this something that you'll be instituting at your firm? <laughs> I wish. I know it's just it continuing to make my life harder to get <laughs> every day talented lawyers because it is so hard to keep up with the market as far as little uh, benefits here and there for the market right now. Yeah, it's a good one because all attorneys want our vacations. So that's where this comes in. I mean, and of course, everybody works on vacation and it's, it's just kind of a fun thing. Somebody will plan it for you. You can get Goodwin to plan your vacation. I don't know. It feels a little over the top and that they're in, they're in every aspect of your life. But as far as fun, and if I was an associate looking for a job, you know, it might cross my mind. Tony, you're a busy guy. You're a legal expert. Uh, you're a professor. Uh, you're a very busy man. I, what, what's your vacation look like? Are you working? Are you emailing? Are you the type of guy that turns off that, uh, that iPhone and just concentrates on the vacay? Yeah, you know, when your name's on the door, you don't really vacation. You find, you know, spots of time to take some time, but have a backup plan to cover a message. That's just our lives. I think all of us can agree to that, that that actually happens at, at this point. But I guess I was wondering about the, um, the incentive, because I thought that 2000 hours was sort of the threshold or, or sort of the expectation at most firms, um, certainly this big firm. Um, so I don't know, are they getting to a, a, an additional week of vacation on top of two weeks that are already part of their package or whatever? I'm wondering how much of an incentive it is if they're just taking a vacation week and, and taking care of it for you. So, it's a great question. It's a really great question because I think most associates at that firm would tell you that it's great to have a vacation, but if you're not getting an adjustment on your billable hours, well, then is it really a vacation, right? We've actually at my firm, which is a small firm, we have 30 lawyers, we are adjusted. We've adjusted our policy because it's great to say, take as much vacation as you want, but you still have hours requirement. So how much of a vacation really can you take? Sure, sure. I mean, my guess is just based on how busy our transactional practice was last year. And that's where we really see Goodwin in the market that these folks are billing well north of 2000 hours. So, um, I mean, I think that that's why that coupled with how difficult it is to keep associates happy and to find them when you need them, especially that mid-level and senior level associate that helps you run, you know, helps you run transactions and is really critical in litigation. Um, You know, I I think that's what it is. I mean, our associates are are billing like crazy, especially in areas like transactions and restructuring, for example, that have been very busy. Well, Joe, it might interest you that according to Above the Law and the Millbank salary increase, which is the standard for big law at this firm that we're talking about, Goodwin, the class of 2021 can be expecting a salary of 215K uh, to start. So add a vacation on top of that, Joe, and they're doing okay. Yeah, yeah, that, that should be the uh, the selling point for anyone to go to law school right now, wouldn't you say? Or just 
jump right into it. Of course, you're coming out of law school with uh, a lot of debt, so there's there's that too. But that that's true. But then you can just uh, drink your problems away on vacation, uh, funded by the <laughs> the firm. That sounds great. Ro- Rich actually coaches me a lot, but normally it's through the Zoom chat. And thankfully, we're not in virtual court because that's what a lawyer was doing with one of his clients, and now Tina suspended for two months. Yeah. So, Joe, starting March 1st, an Arizona lawyer is going to be serving a two-month suspension and a two-year probationary period after he was accused of using the chat function when he was in a virtual trial um, through GoToMeeting to coach his client. So the lawyer's name is Ryan Patrick Claridge, and he specializes in family law, and he was accused of sending messages to one of his divorce clients while she was being cross-examined by her then-estranged husband, a couple of years ago. The presiding judge was in the courtroom while everybody else had been participating through GoToMeeting. So the judge didn't realize what was happening until she actually reviewed the chat. Um, And his messages directed his client as to the types of specificity and answers that she needed to give when asked questions. The judge directed him to stop and he agreed, but he said to the judge, well, this is really no different than if I was in the courtroom and I was shaking my head at her. So the attorney has conditionally admitted that he acted inappropriately and violated ethics rules and that he engaged in conduct involving fraud, deceit, or misrepresentation, and that it was prejudicial to the administration of justice. Claridge's lawyer chalks it up to the fact that he's a young lawyer trying to navigate his way through the COVID environment like we all have been. I don't know, Rich. I find this all highly suspect. I think it's common sense not to be using the chat function, even if you're a new lawyer. You know what? It just proves my point that uh, COVID is the greatest excuse for anything in the world. (laughs) Hey, uh, oh, you want me to help you move? Yeah. Sorry, COVID. You want me to lend you a couple thousand bucks? Nah, nah, COVID. This guy blaming COVID is great. But a couple things. Um, I mean, this happened. I mean, the fact that this guy said it would be the same as if I shook my head, as if that's okay. I've actually <laughs> had attorneys. Like, it happens all the time. And, and you know, Rachel and, and uh, Tony, you guys are trial lawyers, too. You'll back me up. I mean, there are depositions. There are trials I've been in where I look over at the plaintiff's table, and he's doing like, no. He's like, <laughs> No, or he's like blinking his eyes, like he's blinking some code to the to his client. I actually will stand a little, you know, trial lawyers t- uh, trick. I will stand in between the sight line of the other attorney and his witness to prevent that from happening. But yeah, I mean, this stuff has gone on in uh, in trials and depths for years. But hey, with technology, it's made it uh, made it easier. Rachel, have you ever had to ask the judge to make your opponent stop directing his uh, his witness? Well. Not the judge, but I think what's happening here is in virtual uh, through the the trials I've been doing virtually for the last two years, I am always thinking this is happening. And so when people sometimes they're together and you have a lawyer off screen, you know, you do because you hear it. Is anyone there with you? No, no one's here with me. Okay. Um, so I, but using the chat function takes it a bit too far, even though I think people are texting back and forth all the time. They gotta be Tony. Don't you think this is happening uh, happening in every single trial or, or depth? Yeah, I think the texting made more sense. Um, you know, this lawyer was. I think the uh, his lawyer's position is valid. He was clearly young and dumb. I don't know. If- <laughs> 
if the thing that he did, though, let, let's think about it. What he told her to do was expand on her answers. He didn't tell her to say a specific thing. So I'm wondering if this lawyer were a 20-year veteran with the same judge, would that have been a reaction? So I think, you know, not that he shouldn't have been punished or dinged, especially as a young lawyer trying to teach him the ethical ropes, right? We can't let it go. But uh, I don't know if the thing that he did was as egregious as the wink that happens in court. I've been in situations where I've actually said to the witness, why are you looking at your lawyer and walk over there, make a big dramatic moment of trying to block that path, as you all said. So, yeah, it's, it's a constant uh, chess match trying to communicate <laughs> with a witness who's, you know, inside your heart is tearing because they're not saying what you want them to say. And uh, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, you can't do that. And um, poor guy, it's going to be a while before he um, gets his reputation back that had yet to be built. So we'll see what happens. Only the hard-hitting topics here on Legal Face-Off. Rich, we're finally getting closer to the answer of what actual Mexican food is because the Las Vegas Shopping Center has picked up the majority of the legwork working on this very, very serious case. The age-old story, Joe, does cheddar cheese qualify as Mexican food or not? I mean, obviously not, but... Yeah, there's actually, a, there, we've covered, I think we've covered this kind of lawsuit before where in the contract for this chain... It's called Chop Stop, and they, they are located in a strip mall, and they have a menu item called the Viva Mexico Chop Salad on it, which is delicious mix of black beans, jalapenos, tomatoes, cheddar cheese, chicken, and some other stuff. There is a competing Mexican chain called Cafe Rio in the same strip mall, and it is arguing in this new lawsuit that the other restaurant being in the same location violates a provision in the lease that there can't be any other Mexican restaurant in the same shopping center uh, that sells 10% or more of its menu as Mexican or Tex-Mex. And of course, there's this dispute now as to whether the competing restaurant's menu qualifies as Mexican. They're arguing that it's not. By the way, it's called Cafe Rio. So, I mean, that might be the first uh, hint that this is a not such a, a strong lawsuit. But yes, so they're they're hiring experts, uh, chefs, basically talking about the history of Mexican food, um, whether, like I mentioned, cheddar cheese is something that you would find in a true Mexican uh, a salad. Um, one of the uh, professors quoted says, we don't even have cheddar cheese. Uh, it's not something you find in Mexican cuisine. So it seems like a frivolous lawsuit, but I think it does have uh, important uh, legal uh, implications. Tina, I know you like a nice Mexican chopped salad. Uh, is cheddar Mexican or not? Well, you know, I'm half Mexican. So the way I approach this topic is, you know, it when you see it, you know, kind of like pornography in the Supreme Court. So, you know, I think just a couple of things. First of all, these people wanted to get out of their lease. I mean, that's really what this is about here. It has nothing to do with this existential discussion about what is and is not Mexican food. Second of all, when a salad has the word Mexico in the name, it, the, the mere fact that it evokes Mexican cuisine, even if technically it isn't, is in my book, it should be treated as Mexican cuisine. Third of all, I don't know if cheddar cheese is really often used in Mexican cuisine, but my guess is that it was substituted 
for other cheese that is typically found in Mexico because it was more, it was less expensive and everything else that's in that salad sure sounds Mexican to me. So that's where I come out on it. Tony, other courts have delved into this important legal debate before. And there was a case uh, involving Panera bread uh, in 2006 in which a Massachusetts judge had to decide whether burritos, tacos, quesadillas were in fact sandwiches. And the court issued a uh, very legal definition of what sandwiches are. Uh, what are your thoughts on these? Is it, are these frivolous lawsuits or are they actual meritorious? Yeah, two pieces of bread, sometimes with butter, uh, was the starting point for the I didn't get I didn't get the sandwich. butter thing. I didn't get the butter part of that ruling, by the way. Yeah, sometimes buttery. That was weird. Um, yeah, this is an important legal debate. But, you know, we're talking about a whole lot of money. And as uh, Tina said a minute ago, this is clearly about these guys trying to get out of their lease. This happened right at the beginning of the pandemic, if you might note. Uh, so, you know, restaurants were doing, uh, doing horribly at that time. Um, so this, uh, I think, a group was looking for any way they could get out. But if you've ever been to Vegas and or I'm sorry, it's Arizona, Vegas, wherever this is, it's all strip malls with the same sort of restaurants anyway. It would be interesting to see if there was a constant battle between one restaurant that sold, you know, a quarter pounder hamburger as opposed to a third pounder, you know, in the same space. So it's fun. Uh, but, you know, I think they're serious about it. There's money at stake. Be sure to tune in next week on Legal Grab Bag, where we discuss if a hot dog is a sandwich or not. Uh, uh, not, not sure what coupons would be valid for this, Tina. But apparently, a Texas woman was interested in buying a child from another customer at a Walmart. Yes. yes. So if we, if we didn't think we were in the theater of the absurd with the last story, we most certainly are with this story. So imagine that you're standing in line at the neighborhood Walmart and someone offers to pay you $250,000 in exchange for your child. Well, that's what happened to a Texas woman when a woman named Rebecca Lynette Taylor approached her and her two small children in the store. The mother had her baby in a car seat and her one-year-old was in the cart. And Taylor started to comment on how wonderfully blonde this woman's son's um, hair was and his beautiful blue eyes. And then she asked her how much she could purchase her son for. The offer started at $250,000 and Taylor actually claimed that she had the money in her car. Um, when the mother told Taylor that her son was not for sale for any amount, that really upped the ante. Taylor offered $500,000 and started making quite the scene in the parking lot. As luck would have it, the mother was by her car and was able to get her and her kids inside the car and lock the doors. And Taylor apparently left the scene shortly after making quite the scene. Um, an on-site camera caught everything on video and a warrant was issued for Taylor's arrest. And she's currently being held at the Houston County Jail with a $50,000 bond. This must be one of the strangest, if not the strangest story we've covered, Rich, in the seven, eight years of this show. Reminds you of the Blues Brothers scene where, uh, you know, uh, Jake Blues says, I want your women. I want you to buy your women. How much fuzzy women? Uh, that was at Shea Paul, I think. Um, yeah, strange story. Um, but if it's going to happen anywhere, it's going to happen at Walmart. You know, this ain't happening at Tarjay. 
This, uh, especially in Texas, I think this is one of the many weird things that happens at Walmart, uh, at Walmart, uh, in, in Texas, but you know, it's a series. Actually, I was just reading that the Super Bowl in uh, LA, where I am right now, at the end of the or next weekend, is one of the most uh, busy times for human trafficking of the year. Uh, so, you know, human trafficking is obviously a huge issue, and this seemed. I'm glad they glad they they caught this person, but uh, yeah, again, I've seen many strange things when I've been in line at Walmart, and this would be one of them. Um, Rachel. Any thoughts on this odd story? Can't buy babies. Can't buy babies. It, it is who a knew? law. Who knew? Yeah, who knew? Um, and you're right. It touches on the human trafficking, although this is not how you imagine it usually goes down. I mean, there's tales of this kind of thing in India or other countries where parents are incredibly poor, where baby selling happens. Um, so at its core, it's really sad. Um, and from a higher level, it's just absurd. So, um, yeah, can't buy babies. So there's the, this is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Tony, I got a, uh, 16 year olds, not the easiest time of my daughter's life. I don't know. 500 grand. Maybe I'm not, I'm not saying yes. I'm not exactly saying no. I'm just saying (laughs) gives me a little pause, you know, I mean, I've had some good years with her already. It's maybe, maybe time. Yeah, you know, my kids are just finishing college and we could use that money to kind of recoup. <laughs> um, you know, I think though, I, sorry, I got to be contrarian here a bit. I don't buy any of this. I think that what was happening here was this person was mentally ill of some sort and just said something and left. It'd be different for me if there were a group of people kind of hanging around with this sort of thing that lends itself more to human trafficking. Um, Again, it just smells funny to me. And and I'll tell you why. She first offered 250 and said it was in the car. I think at that point, we should have realized that this is a joke. No one drives around 250 in their car unless they're part of some, you know, large conspiratorial group. And then finally, she countered by saying (laughs) 250 (laughs) It's not, it's not enough. She counted with 500,000 and then finally. At the very least, she's a terrible negotiator. There was, there was, at the very least, she's an awful negotiator to double, double her offer without a counter. Right, right. She missed that class uh, in negotiations in law school, I guess. But, um, you know, I don't know. I, I will say the thing that is troubling and sad, she's in jail on a $50,000 bond somewhere in Texas. So there must be more to this in a way that a judge would have taken it that seriously. So, you know, even though it sounds unbelievable to me, there's probably something else um, maybe associated with this person's background uh, where they've done this before. So we'll see. We're moving on to Bears. Joe, I, just, I think, Joe, I, I once got almost arrested t- at uh, Walmart for uh, trying to, instead of the four-for-one DVD bin, you know, that big barrel of DVDs from, like, you know, the early 80s, instead of a four you know, four for five dollars. I tried to get five for five dollars. Yeah. Well, they 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 stopped you because you asked for five copies of Kingpin, and yes. no one needs that. Yes. Why why five copies of the same movie? Uh, well, if the Bears ever do move to Arlington Heights, as we have the craziest segue of all, uh, I guess we now have to get ready for people suing for the fact that the Chicago Bears wouldn't be playing in Chicago because the Giants. And Jets fan from New York feels entitled to something since his team plays in New Jersey. 
Yeah, I mean, we mentioned a weird lawsuit earlier. This is not so weird. It's just, you know, maybe the stupidest one in a long time. Uh, this is a fan. The plaintiff is just saying that um, he's seeking $2 million in monetary damage. This is $4 billion, or $2 billion monetary, $4 billion in punitive. Uh, it alleges false advertising and deceptive practices. Uh, quote, plaintiff of the class of New York Giants and Jets fans respectfully request that both teams return to the state of New York so they can enjoy all the healthy social, psychological, and physical benefits associated with sports identifications of their home NFL teams. Uh, the plaintiff, again, alleges emotional damages, depression, sadness, and anxiety. Wait a second, Joe. You're a Jets fan, and this is why you're psychologically damaged? <laughs> really? He'd be better off suing the team for psychological yeah. damage. I think the fact that you're a Jets fan means that you've suffered years and years of psychological trauma. But uh, Tina, lawsuit, good lawsuit, or abuse of the legal system again? Well, I think it's an abuse of the legal system, but I do have to give props to the complaint, which I read through. It didn't sound as absurd as I was expecting it to. That being said, I still think it's a crazy lawsuit. Rachel, uh, Tony, you want to weigh in on this? Damages. You've got to show your damages. And they did take it seriously and wrote a 19-page complaint and tried to walk through it. I mean, I think they actually are giving it a go here, false advertising, our travel costs. So many people don't know where they play, but no, I, I think this doesn't go anywhere. It's really hard to allege true damages um, because a stadium is elsewhere than, than the home state of a team. But it did get, like Christina said, it did give me like a little pause. Like, well, like, I guess it feels a little dishonest, you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> I I had a moment um, and then I didn't care again. <laughs> <laughs> My thoughts on it uh, started with standing almost like, I mean, yeah. what's his standing to claim New York as something that, you know, the idea and feeling of which he owns. I will say that uh, if we squeak a fact here, what if we made this a college team, right? And the college team played in New Jersey as opposed to the University of, of fictional University of New York, right? So at, at that point, he would have some say in that if he were a taxpayer paying dollars that went to that university, he may have something there. But, you know, NFL is a club of people. They can call their teams whatever they want. They can call the you know, New Arlington Heights team, the Chicago Bears, if they choose. You know, it's unfortunate. But Well, yeah. Tony, before we wrap up, I, I want to get your perspective. We just talked earlier about the uh, Brian Flores law. So we have a couple minutes left. I want to get to our last topic. Before we do that, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't get your perspective. Uh, really, maybe in 60 seconds on the uh, the Brian Flores lawsuits, especially in the wake of the fact that there has been, you know, another hire. Now, the latest hire that the Dolphins made is a biracial coach. But by all accounts, uh, the NFL is doing pretty poorly uh, filling these slots. And the NFL has had more black coaches prior to this moment. Uh, so I don't think it's a good defense for the NFL to suddenly hire a bunch of black coaches. I think the issue really is that process, that Rooney Rule process, those sham sort of interviews. And I think uh, if you look at it, even without delving into it too deeply, it does look like a weird process. And I think it's going to get past summary judgment. And I think that it will be a real thing. And I think the NFL should be aware uh, of this piece. It's just 
so intertwined with race, the league is, and these issues keep coming up, and we'll have to see. I think it's important, though. And the recent news, too, just coming, that Lovey Smith being hired by the Houston Texans. is that, Man, that, came, that came out of nowhere. I mean, he's a yeah. he, defensive coordinator, but I had to explain. My son is a huge NFL fan. He's 12. I had to explain to him who Lovey Smith was. It's been, it's been that long, you know. But yeah, I know. Uh, really quickly, on one of Tony's points, uh, saying the difference of colleges and the NFL, then if that's the case, there can't be Wichita State, Murray State. They're not actual states. I, I never understood <laughs> that. Well, let's file that lawsuit. Let's go. Let's figure it out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll piggyback off of that. All right. Let's let's all just finally come to terms. And, you know, us five here and, and everyone involved, our producers, too, have known that for a while now that attractive people get more benefits in life. That's just part of it. We we understand that. We're, we'll plead guilty to that. Uh, but thousands of admirers are leaving comments on a post of a, we'll call him a well-facially structured burglar in the UK. Yeah, this is uh, Jonathan Cahill, whose mugshot is breaking the internet. Uh, here he is, right here. <laughs> Man, I, when I first saw the mugshot, I thought it was the next James Bond or something. This guy's, <laughs> this guy's a good-looking dude. He was... Uh, what released from prison last September, he served part of a sentence for burglary. And uh, there's been 7,000 messages, not from people tipping up where he is or anything, but from admirers. And, you know, you can't, you know, these, some of the responses are, uh, are amazing. One said, uh, I have a spare room if he wants. Oh, and a pair of handcuffs. Uh, another one called in the world's hottest felon. Uh, another woman said, leave it with me. I'll find him. Another one said, uh, what's his crime breaking hearts or houses. Um, so, uh, yeah, good looking guy, Tina. I don't know. Would you, uh, turn this guy in or would you maybe let him hang out for a little while? He's not really my type. I mean, I know some people go for like the Brad Pitt sort, which is sort of what he reminds me of. But he's not my type, so I think, you know, I turn him in. David Sussler is more your type, as we know. <laughs> I am married to him, so I guess it's good when, you know, my type matches the person I've married. Um, Tony, you've undoubtedly represented a variety of defendants, both on, on either end of the uh, attractiveness scale. Right. Most of your clients maybe wouldn't, you know, qualify as a fit felon, but... Uh, what are your thoughts on this this guy? I'm telling you, if, if if I had anything to do with this, we would bond this guy out, <laughs> get him clean, and I would sign him up. He is probably going to be the biggest star. Think about it. He has that look, that look from the guy on the movies who's always a bad guy in every movie because he has that look. Oh, fans would eat it up. I mean, this is a great opportunity for him, I think. He just has to get out of his jail sentence and move forward. He's good. He should be a, he should be in a guy Ritchie movie like right away. But uh, absolutely. Rachel, how important is it? We're joking, but, you know, as someone who represents a lot of uh, defendants and you're trying to make an impression to a jury, how important is one's physical appearance, one's demeanor, one's, uh, you know, uh, how a jury looks at people? We know that juries are just regular people and they don't, they don't always apply the law. They just sometimes like or don't like a criminal defendant, unfortunately. 
attractive people have better lives in all aspects. I mean, juries are people. So they, I mean, it also would depend how he came off, but I'm to assume this man also has an accent. Um, So I think, I think he's in, I think he's got it. He's stealing hearts. He's doing all of the things that people are commenting on and juries would like him. I mean, I will even often shame on me, bring it up to a prosecutor that, hey, you know, this is an attractive person that I will let them know what they are dealing with should they bring a case against mm-hmm. a client. And this all matters. So I think this guy is going to be on a show pretty soon. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm here to help men LA. There you go. You can help me, Rachel. We can. Rachel says, call me. (laughs) So here's to hoping here's hoping that all future criminals and culprits are mundane at best so that all trials are just and true. Uh, Big thanks to Rachel. Big thanks to Tony, along with all of our earlier guests today as well. Our producers, Yvonne Barbosa, Emily Flores and Ben Anderson. Don't forget to like, subscribe and share the Legal Face Off podcast wherever you find your podcasts. Please do us a favor and give us five stars as well. For Tina Martini and Rich Lenkoff, I'm Joe Brand. You've been listening to the Legal Face Off podcast on WGN Radio. It's Christina Martini and Rich Linkoff. You know what time it is. Welcome to Legal Face Off. Two lawyers trading jab for jab. So hit them up with any questions you have. WGN Radio, we blowing up your stereo. Got a question? Just pick up the phone and they'll let you know. Covering sports, Hollywood, and don't forget the...